we'll 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 fight this. It's, it's, I suppose it's quite apt since you are a uh, legacy media to have quite a fluffy phone line. Uh, <laughs> well, we're doing about that, but yeah, okay. Um, let's, let's give it a go. Yes, well, that's good because we're back in 1972 before I was alive. So this is a history lesson. This new book. In Perfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. Before we go any further, Will Hodgkinson, is Gary Glitter in this book? He is mentioned, and I, people like Gary Glitter I had a problem with, you know, because I didn't want to destroy what is essentially a celebratory social history, really, of all of this music that has traditionally been seen as rather naff and unstylish. But he was part of that, so I had to address it. And the way I did it was tell his story, you know, which is really the story of the kind of glam sound that he and the producer Mike Leander came up with. Um, that sort of glam stomp, which was, you know, at the heart of what he did, basically just kind of compressed form of rock and roll. But then, of course, I had to say that he essentially killed off any goodwill or potential for a re- revival of his own music by, you know, uh, some, you know, some hideous crimes. And so... Yeah, he is in jail in the Isle of Wight at the moment. I mean, I think it would have been too far to actually interview him. That would have been uh, not very good. But, yes. um, yeah, he's certainly part of it. I've just read about the rapper Mystical. Do you remember Mystical? Shake your ass and watch yourself. Um, I not, remember the name. Not a nice man, but the hook didn't do the crime. It was the person singing the hook. And Dorian Linsky famously said a line that I use all the time, Billy Jean cannot be cancelled. And... I think music critics are wrestling with the fact that the guy who came up with Wake Up and Power Out uh, has done some things that are less than... Well, that, that 10 years ago would have been not unfine and now off in this post-Ryan Adams bit of fine. I suppose what I want to ask you, as someone who does criticise for a living, and then we'll get to your back catalogue, do you do that thing where you isolate the creator and the melody? Because, as I've said with Michael Jackson it wasn't the melody that slept with the children. It wasn't Quincy Jones's production or J.R. Robinson's drumming or t- like Steve, um, uh, what's his name, Jeff Beccaro. He didn't do anything wrong. Why should we not listen to human nature? Well, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the Arcade Fire, who's, which is not, not nearly as serious as that. It's just, you know, um, the lead singer who's been you know, having some inappropriate sex messages and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's, what, 10 people up on that stage? And, uh, you know, a whole world of, of, of music that they've created. So I think it's very dangerous to reduce everything down to individual acts of immorality. Uh, you know, I think when you're talking about music, I'm not trying to review the person. Um, and that's been something that's kind of crept into music journalism recently. But, you know, suddenly you feel that you've got to kind of judge the music on its moral worth when actually what you're doing is trying to separate it from the person and judge it on its artistic and creative worth. Absolutely right. I call it equality act journalism, where all everyone with some kind of character protected characteristic is automatically better. But what I admire in the paper for whom for or for which I don't know if a times is a person or a thing, but let's go with a person, a legal entity for, uh, for whom you write. Um, Jade Cuttle, I know, has made the decision to follow through the, the Times procedure of not capitalising the word black, for instance. But I've I've been a reader of the Times for fifteen years now. I think I've read every single permutation of a Matthew Syed column, um, and and I'm still indebted to your music criticism. I always turn to your pieces first of all on a Friday. 
No, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I try not to get bogged down too much in the morals of it. You know, there's there's enough going on just to listen to the music, try and assess that. Sometimes you can't ignore it, you know, but, but on the whole, I just think that it gets, you know, it's not really my role to be judge and jury of situations which I only know what I've read, you know, so um, it's, but I can, I can make a judgment, you know, on the creative act. Your evening last Thursday, we're talking on the 12th of September, must have been very interesting given where you were and what you were about to do or in the middle of doing at the time. Um, the Mercury's was right... I mean, I can tell you exactly what was happening. We had got to the point where we hadn't come up with the winner. We were arguing over the various merits of the 12, which is what always happens. You know, everyone has their favourites, you, you discuss things. I can't... You know, I couldn't beyond what, what's actually said in the room. I, you know, I'm, I'm duty man not to kind of reveal. But, you know, certainly all those 12 albums had, you know, their, their champions and so on. And we thought, so we'd heard the news that the Queen was ill. And the question was, was the Queen ill a euphemism for the Queen is dead, as it turned out it was? Um, or was it just um, the Queen is ill? You know, like Prince Philip was ill. And, and you know, they, for a few days we knew that he was, he was dying. So nobody really knew, and the assumption was that maybe it won't go out on it won't go out live on on BBC Four. Um, it was meant to be on the one show, and mm-hmm. I think we knew that wasn't happening. But you know, the assumption was that the show would go on, um, and it was really at the last minute. I think it was about what six thirty, seven o'clock when the news came through, and we were told, "No, that's it." Uh, and it's a really, really difficult to call because. You know, you can understand it. I mean, what would it have been like for that winner? You know, they would have been totally, it would have been a very hard thing to celebrate. Well, there is a precedent, as as I think you noted, or, or Alexis may have noted in The Guardian, PJ Harvey in 2001, receiving the award while New York smouldered. I guess that the organisers wouldn't have wanted that to happen again. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, but you did, and that went ahead. Mm. I mean, you've got to remember also that that's, that is long enough to go. Okay, the news came through, but it wasn't 24-hour social media feed, total news in the way that it is now. So when the Queen dies, you know, this massive event, every single person on the planet is kind of almost aware immediately. Um, that probably would have mean, meant that the, the Mercury's would have just been completely overshadowed and it wouldn't have been in the news the next day. But you don't want the headlines to be rockers party on while Queen dies. So I think mm. I understood. But it's really, really difficult. I mean, you know, they cost about a million pounds, I suppose, you know, so to uh, whether you can get insurance for, for the death of a royal, I don't know. So yeah, it was it was really weird. I mean, what I can tell you is I ended up in the pub with um, what's it? I think Wetleg was there um, and Sam Fender, who <laughs> wow. in from America, and everyone, loads of people in there, just getting, getting very drunk, really. You know, kind of commiserating, and you know, sort of. But it was really sad. I mean, it's a bit like you know, if you if you go to the airport, you're really excited, you're going off, you know, on a big adventure. And then it's announced that the flight is cancelled and you're waiting for the carousel to return your luggage. It felt like that. Oh, gosh. And we don't, we'll don't. we await, uh, as things stand, we don't know when uh, the, the ceremony or even the prize will take place, but I imagine you'll come in and you'll go, right, where were we? Who will it be? And it's a great shortlist this year, so congratulations for, uh, for picking these 12 albums. Are, are you allowed to say how many with the long list, how many albums you actually listened to in whole or in part, which were... Yeah, there's hundreds. It starts off with that 200, and then you get, we get an iPod, you know, old-fashioned iPod, with all, any, basically anyone is 
anyone who's completed an album can enter. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's absolutely new. Um, a lot of them because of my job I'd already heard, and then you sort of revisit and go through, and then you, you kind of slowly go down and go down. I think we get down to about 25 or something. Then we have a, have a conversation about that, and then you end up with a 12. So it's, it's a long process. Um, I think it will happen again. I think the latest news was everyone was quite chipper. Um, the problem really is getting all those musicians in, in the room. You know, like I said, Wet Leg and Sam Fender had coming from America where they had, they'd actually had to cancel dates to be there. Mm. And so that costs a fortune. Yeah. So whether we can, whether it can be pulled off again, we'll wait and see. No, or you could, of course, do a Zoom one. Yeah, we did that in the, in the pandemic. It was pretty sad. I mean, I felt so sorry for Michael Kiwanuka. He made this wonderful album and everyone loved it and was really pleased that, that you know, that he'd won. And Mac had to kind of ambush him outside of TV studio. I remember you know, it well. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought, oh, no, that's your big moment. You know, um. it's sad. In any respect, the Mercury always seems like just getting nominated is a thrill to be one of the albums of the year. And then I don't know who it was this year, Little Sims and Clara Ampho and you. Uh, is Simon Frith still there? No, Simon Frith's not still there. He's it's now a guy called David Wilkinson who, who uh-huh. sort of runs the show. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it's really good fun. I always really enjoy it. It's it's you know I like the I like the fellow judges. You know we end up drinking quite a lot, um, and you know it's great when you have you know some album often albums which I wasn't particularly familiar with. It. And you know there they are. They sold a couple of hundred records, and suddenly they're a Mercury winner. You know, sorry. You know, Generally not winning, Mercury nominee. Uh, yeah, there's always cynicism about award ceremonies, and often quite rightly so. We really don't know who wins until just before it's announced. I believe you. So everyone finds out. Yeah. yeah. Because we're arguing about it. You know, and it goes right up, right up to the wire, and David always gets worried. And, um, you know, uh, I remember the, the year when Skepta won, and I think it's, it's no secret now, but it was a big conversation between Skepta and David Bowie because David Bowie was dead. Uh, where does that money go? What does it mean? You know, but then it was a brilliant album. He sort of turned his own death into an art form. Um, and it's a really, really interesting conversation about what it means to win albums of the year. So that was a, that went right to the wire, that one. I have been... I do an album of the year with a friend of mine, Chris, and I've been, because I thought we'd be doing it more regularly than, this year, uh, than we have done, uh, but my album of the year is by Miranda Lambert, which is a complete Gesamtkunstwerk which is, I think, a word you must throw around in the Mercury uh, Prize discussion. It's not, I've never even heard that word before. It's a complete artwork. It's uh, Ask Richard Morrison. He'll know. He'll tell you. Okay. Um, yes, I'll, I'll ask the grown-up. Yes, quite right. Um, but the, the Miranda album is brilliant, and she's, I've been listening to country music for the last 10 years. You listen to everything. You wrote a great review of Muse the other week. Um, I imagine that the big review as we talk is going to be Marcus, my friend Marcus, who dropped out of my classics course after 13 weeks to become Marcus Mumford. He seems to have done what he's threatened to do for years, which is to put out a solo album, which is him without the sons. So without telling us what you think of it, can you give us like an adjective of Marcus's album? I can't. I can't because I haven't listened to it yet. I'll be listening to it tomorrow probably. So yeah, I'll be needing to get on with that one. So, so generally with the album done... Because I'm reviewing albums every week and often about, you know, half a dozen. Um, it's almost impossible for me to get round to listening to them before the beginning of the week. And generally Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll go through them. And, you know, Thursday, I'm writing up it's in the paper Friday. So, no, couldn't tell you. Fine.
Uh, I did also want to ask if you ever meet up with Bob Stanley and Pete Perfidis, who were your predecessors as Times Rock Critic. Do you have kind of a big, long vinyl session? No, not really. I think Bob and Pete do. Um, Pete warned me about this. Bob was never the Times Critic. He loved the Times. So he was never actually the... Of that, course, you know, yeah. You've kind of right that, that that job. Pete was sort of warned me. He said, he told me about how incredibly stressful it is. And it is very stressful. And, you know, it's somebody dies and you suddenly have to write six hundred words wherever you are, you know, it's constant. But um he yeah, he, I think Pete is much happier now doing kind of long form articles, that's what he's really suited to. He did that great book, Broken Greek. Um so I talk to him every now and then, but no, not really. No, but if anyone else could have written this book in perfect harmony, sing along pop in seventies Britain, it probably would be either Bob Stanley or Pete Buffidi. So you have outdone them albeit bob has written two enormous you know they bookends you could actually put let's do it and yeah 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 as bookends for the music library yeah, 100 years. yeah you can do that basically that's the 20th century right there yeah um, bob bob yes and so i have to say bob was really generous about in perfect harmony it's very much up his street you know it's it's a book which is kind of reclaiming all the sort of seemingly rather naff novelty songs of the 70s and, and looking into their social significance, really. That's, that, that was the original idea. Um, and I thought, oh, God, am I stepping on his toes here? Is he going to get annoyed? And what he did, which is just absolutely brilliant, before it came out, I sent him a proof copy. And he's actually ill with COVID, so he's stuck in bed. And he sat there and went through the whole thing. He was really generous about it. He basically gave me a free copy edit, you know, pointed out a few things that I didn't definitely got wrong. And was super nice about it and really uh, encouraging and generous and um, thought that it was great that someone had done this. The reason I did that book was because I love the Velvet Underground and Can and Led Zeppelin and everything else which is, you know, in the canon of tasteful music. But that stuff... You know, if you read Mojo and even the you know Times article and everything, you'd assume that you know people like Nick Drake were selling millions of records in the seventies, which of course they weren't. You know, they were selling absolutely nothing, and they were discovered later on. People like Zeppelin were big, but that was all credible music. And I was thinking, well, this was the era when the single really came to its own. You know, kids started buying singles in their millions for the first time. You know, especially after Mark Bolan had the brilliant idea of putting two singles on the B side, it's better value for money. And I thought, well, there's a whole world here of, you know, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap, or, you know, the Wombles and so on. All of this stuff which is traditionally derided, which felt like it's got a story to tell. And what's more, often these songs are really, really clever. You know, I was speaking with Lawrence, who's a cult star of indie bands like Felt and Denim, and he was saying, give me that ding by Pitkin, which is one of those songs that often ends up on, you know, the kind of worst songs of the 70s. And he was saying what a brilliantly constructed song it is, how clever, how melodically clever, how the structure was just so economical, and, and also how hard it is to write brilliant songs like that. So he was, so he sort of understood what I was trying to get at, which is kind of take seriously music that has traditionally not been taken seriously at all. Hear, hear. And you will be blue in the face when you finish talking about this book in perfect harmony. You're actually on a tour of sorts, the Will Hodgkinson tour, um, which yeah. begins at the British Music Experience in Liverpool on September 22nd. It goes all the way down to Devon. You see, that's a stupid thing to do. You're going down to Devon three days after Liverpool. I don't know who's booking your tour. 
Yeah, I don't think I've got a tour manager. No. It's, you know, it's, great, it's great you get asked to do things and, you know, I go along with them whenever I can. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, the other thing about this book is it's just absolutely fun. I'm not claiming credit. It's what was already there. So many stories attached to these songs, which I never knew until I started delving into it. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'd, I'd like to teach the world to sing, which is sort of the ultimate 70s sing-along classic. Everybody knows it because the Coda advert, the New Seekers. And digging into that, it was written by two guys called Roger Greenway and Roger Cook, who are big early 70s songwriters. They were writing jingles for Coca-Cola. A guy called Bill Backer came over from America, who's working for Coca-Cola, um, to meet them. His plane got diverted because of a big storm, and he ended up in Shannon in Ireland. And everyone was fed up, walking across, you know, sitting there in the, in, the, in the lounge complaining. And then he noticed they all started buying a Coca-Cola uh, from the cafe, and they, the mood, they started chatting to each other, and then their mood, they were laughing and the mood improved. And he thought, well, it's not. The Coca-Cola account, it's the social aspect that buying something like, a, you know, just a soft drink allowed these people, these formerly strangers to do and kind of bond over. So that, so he came with that idea, he came to Roger and Roger Greenway and said, you know, I want to do a song about uh, buying the world a Coke. And I think it was Roger Greenway, he said, well, if I was going to um, do something for the world, I wouldn't just buy them a Coke. And he said, well, what would you do? He said, you know, I'd i teach them to sing, and I'd, or I'd, build the, I'd build the world a home and furnish it with love. So they came up with this song. The melody was based on an old song they'd done called True Love and Apple Pie, which flopped a couple of, a couple of years earlier. Um, and they sort of rewrote it for um, a kind of suburban hippie anthem. This was just after Woodstock. It was designed for all of those very normal people who never would have gone to Woodstock in a million years, but liked this idea of this kind of peace and love, but in a way that you know went with wall-to-wall carpeting and you know, suburban homes. So they came up with this song. Um, Bill Backer then said, right, we need to shoot an advert. And he hired a, a film director called Harvey Gabor. And they went to Italy to film it. And this is the advert which we all know. But initially, they went to went around the streets of Rome to pick up young like young people who looked the part, kind of hippie-looking young people. Yes. But half of them turned out to be kind of juvenile delinquents. And they were like throwing, there's a famous aerial shot with a helicopter and they're lobbing Coca-Cola bottoms at it and they're like daring their bottoms at the camera and all this kind of stuff. So Harvey Gabble had to get rid of them. Then he had the brilliant idea of going around all of the embassies in Italy, in Rome, because um, then you'd get all these get international kids. And what's more, they'd all be very nice and polite and well-behaved, you know, they're quite, quite posh and privileged. So then he got all of those kids and shot it on a hillside in Italy, um, and there were all kinds of things that went wrong. The helicopter crashed at one point. They shouted cut, and all the kids ran down the hill thinking that they were meant to, you know, get a Coca-Cola when in fact they meant to stay there and knocked over a camera, all kinds of stuff. Um, it ended up costing quarter of a million, which at that point made it the most expensive advertisement ever filmed in history. And so Harvey Gabor and Bill Batter uh, quickly got sacked from McCann Erickson because they spent so much money. Then the advert came out and it was such a huge hat, a huge hit that they had to get reinstated. And the single sold something like 7 million copies in the first week. So it was just an incredible hit. And so that was really, in a way, that sums up the book for me. You know, you've got a song which is went out to all the everyday people. It was actually about something. Um, it had this semi-profound message, but at the same time, it was locked into capitalism. You know, it was there to sell a soft drink. 
Yes, and which song did I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing Knock Off the UK number one? Oh, I can't remember. You have to tell me. Ah, good. Well, you'll have to find out in Imperfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. Uh, it was Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. Oh, there we go, yeah. Another classic. I have got the uh, my uh, greatest hits discography book and just the number ones in the 1970s. You've got a massive picture of Elton John, who was one of the biggest rock stars in Britain. And then the number ones from 1974, which included Alvin Stardust, Jealous Mind, Terry Jack, Seasons in the Sun, Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes. Um, and the Christmas number one that year was Lonely This Christmas by... An Elvis impersonator, or, or Mud, and the guitarist on that song, Rob Davis, went on to write "Can't Get You Out of My Head." So all these links, these are people who yeah. can write pop songs. It's just in well, that in, in the era of Rob Davis, yes, and what you called bricky glam. Bricky glam well, is that... a great phrase. I don't know if you've come up with that. <laughs> bricky glam. I mean, that was the funny thing was is that you know we think of glam in the kind of high art sense. We think of Roxy Music and David Bowie. And the traditional idea is that Ricky Glam guys, you know, Sweet, Slade, Mud, they ripped them off. But if you look at the chronology, it wasn't like that. Moxie Music's first album didn't come out until 73, I think. And Slade were doing stuff at the end of the 60s and really were embracing glam. Mark Bolan was the guy that started glam. He was the, he was the bloke that invented it. As soon as he started putting a bit of glitter on his cheeks and did hot love on top of the pots and buying clothes, women's clothes from Bieber and Alcacura because he had a slight frame and it looked great on him. But he was the one who started it all. But yeah, the Gritty Glam thing was fascinating because these were working class guys. They loved rock and roll. And, you know, generally they were good. They'd been playing in working men's clubs up and down the country for years. All of them, Sweet, Slade, Mud, before they got anywhere. They normally teamed up with, well, in the case of Sweet, they teamed up with uh, Chinning Chaps, you know, Chin and Chapman, who are these, you know, fantastic songwriters. But Slade were writing their own, um, or Mud were doing Chinning Chap songs. The other funny thing about them is that they tended to be, they're quite laddish, but they tended to have one incredibly flamboyant member. So Slade had Dave Hill, who used to, you know, kind of dress up like an Egyptian pharaoh and, you know, super yog, giant platforms, and, and you know, this these sort of outfits made by his sister, with, you know, covering like mirrors and things. Um, Rob Davis would dress up like a sort of lady who lunches from Carthousen in Surrey, you know, with pearl droplet earrings and a mm-hmm. second wave. And um, Steve Priest, from um, the suite came up with the, you know what he called the gay Nazi look, which is this heavy makeup and a sort of World War One fighter helmet and a, you know an Adolf Hitler um, moustache and swastika armband. I mean, absolutely outrageous. But it was all the idea was that it was all pushing boundaries, it was dressing up, it was you know it was kind of you know just pushing everything and being being outrageous. So it was, but it was funny because you know we think of Bowie being this incredibly alien figure. And we think of um, Roxy Music, incredibly glamorous and otherworldly. But the Britney Glam bands were all as outrageous in their own way. And because they were working class guys, they were sort of going more to the heart of British life. And I think a lot of it came from that, you know, the, the culture that's always been the music hall and the working man's club of, of, you know, drag, the pantomime dame, the dressing, you know, men dressing up as women. It's always been there. It's kind of codified on, on the yes. stage. And so the, it was it's part of culture, you know, at the same time you had Are You Being Served, um, which is, you know, John Inman, who's this outrageously camp character. So it's all there. It's all very much part of British working class life. Uh, 
oh, no, I've just had this amazing idea because I'm trying to write this play about the 1973 number one chart battle. And I was going to name the characters William and Thomas. I don't know what Will Hodgkinson, whose brother Tom edits The Idler, inspired me to do that. But it's going to have to be a panto because this whole era was about, is it a boy or is it a girl? We're going to see that in the David Bowie film. Is it called Moon Age Daydream that's out on Sunday? Yeah, that's right, yeah. On Friday. Um, But you are chatting with Brother Tom as part of uh, The Idler uh, on October 6th. There's a brunch with David Hepworth at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. So from from small acorns grow the oak of hoary old rock anecdotes. Uh, That's on October 16th. Uh, And then with Mike Bonker's bat, uh, as Smashy and Nicey called him, uh, for a Womble special at Foyles in Charing Cross, can you in 30 seconds uh, distill the Wombles and their their kind of influence on sing-along pop? I can. The Wombles were brilliant. And Mike Bat was a brilliant songwriter. What he did is he took a, a style um, and he copied it and turned it into, turned, made it Wombles. And so there was a reggae song, there was a Orinoco's Dream, which is a progressive rock epic. And of course, Underground Overground, which is basically what all the glam songs are, which is a pop song pretending to be rock. In other words, it's pure pop, hooks, you know, melodies, but it's played on guitars and heavy drums. So, yeah, the Wombles, the Wombles are great. I mean, the, the Wombles do not get their, their justice deserved. So I think Mike Bat has always struggled with that because he kind of knows they're great on one level. He can, you know, it was a brilliant creation. You know, based on children's books, obviously, by Elizabeth, Elizabeth Beresford. But at the same time, he always says, well, imagine if David Bowie's first hit was The Laughing Gnome. That's what it was like with Smith for me. Oh, and he is still with us, still writing pop songs, and Katie Melua was his great discovery. Yeah. Um, and yeah. The, yes. yeah, I love Mike. I think he's brilliant. 25th of October, Falls Charing Cross. I expect it's sold out by now, but I'll try and get a ticket for that. And uh, perhaps elsewhere, you'll, you will talk about Hot Chocolate's Suburban Disco, about which I know very little, uh, but it's all in perfect harmony. Sing-along pop in 70s Britain, which is out on 9-8 books on September the 15th. Muzzle Tov on uh, bringing it out. And it's added to the whole catalogue of books by... Will Hodgkinson, which we will have to really rapidly, if you don't mind, just whiz through, considering we are in the music library and you have written some books about music. Uh, The ones I have read are Song Man and Guitar Man. Guitar Man is a wonderful picaresque adventure that you made when you were my age, 34. Uh, Do you remember fondly uh, that adventure, learning guitar? Oh, I loved it. Loved it. Learning guitar for the first time i just become a father, and the idea was to tell the story of the guitar through learning it like that, and I got lessons from some of my heroes, like Bert Yant, the great folk guitarist, and Johnny Marr, and all these people. Um, went around America in search of the guitar's roots. Absolutely loved it. That was, And, you know, your first book is always going to be special, isn't it? Oh, and it's so brilliant, and I, I don't think it's been out of print since. I keep seeing it in... No, it's still going, yeah, it's still going, which is lovely. Yeah. It's always fun, you know, writing a book is a, is a painful thing because, you know, the book comes out and you, you, you've always been a bit deflated, you know what I mean? It's just another book, it's just out there. But the guitar man is people have got a lot of affection for, which I'm so grateful for. Yeah, maybe Sam Fender will pick it up and read it. Whoa, I like your Guitar Man book. I think Sam Fender will appreciate Song Man as well. I've just read Shirley Collins's book about Alan Lomax and her, her the memoir that came out quite recently. And I've got a it's new great. appreciation for Shirley, whom you spoke to for Song Man. I don't know what she made of Mystery Fox. Get back in your box. <laughs> I don't think she 
concept album to be made out of your book The House is Full of Yogis. Your dad Neville, who was a science writer for a well-known tabloidy newspaper, went all yogi. So you and Tom grew up in this house full of yogis. I read about the book. I haven't read it, but I, I think it's in the library. But it seemed so bizarre. Does that mean you have a greater affection for spirituality these days? I've got an open mind to spirituality, but it never, I never got that incredible sort of transcendental feeling that my dad got. And that, you see, that's what set him off on this path, because he became a member of an Indian spiritual group called the Brahma Kumaris. But it wasn't because he just thought it was a good idea. He really had that kind of Damascene revelation, you know, where, where he, you know, the third eye opened up and he was, he was in Sartori. I've never had that. So, you know, consequently, I, it was, the book was about... You know, that happened when I was 12, and I was really, I'm still very fond of my dad. He's a really nice guy, but he was a kind of full-on dad before then, you know, like, the kind, you know, we'd build dens in the woods or whatever, you know, and I think if you'd go to the fun fair, had all those kind of dad-like things, and he was really fun. And suddenly, we, that ended, and he was, you know, we, I'd come back from BMXing or whatever, and um, there'd be 30 people dressed in white in the living room, all, like, staring at an egg on the wall, which is, like, you know, the symbol of the, the soul, um, you know, dressed in white. It was very strange. I mean, he's still completely committed to the Brahma Kumaris. He's um, the full-on yogi. That's the life that he has led. And I respect him for it, but I never got that amazing, blissful feeling myself. And Tom and I talk about this sometimes and say that, yeah, we've just, you know, we had to kind of follow our own path. The good thing is, from him, we never had that thing that dads do where they're saying, well, you should be a lawyer, you should be this, you should be that, you should, be, you should own a house by now, you should be rich. You know, we never got any of that because he was so non-materialistic. And, you know, heading towards other things, you know, basically spiritual things. And so that was very liberating. We never got that kind of dad pressure that so many, you know, kids suffer from where you feel that you don't match up. No, and that means that you've, you've written all these books and you've met probably most rock stars. Can you confirm Mark Ellen's theory that there are two kinds of people in the world? Those who like Van Morrison... And those who have met him. <laughs> he wasn't too bad with me. Um, there's a very funny, a friend of mine called Laura Barton wrote a very funny article where she went to see him. He was her hero. She absolutely loved that for weeks. Van Martin was okay with me. He had a point to make. We met, we met in the pandemic and he was, he was very anti-lockdown. So he kind of wanted to bang that drum. But Laura had, she, she thought it was going to be great and it was horrible to her. I have had that. Uh, not with Van Morrison so much, but with Lou Reed. Oh, I was so... Yeah, I read that. Oh, I felt so bad for you. Well, it was okay in the end, but it was like, you know, I 
Transformer was one of the first albums I ever heard that just completely blew my mind. And then you discover the Velvet Underground. Just, you know, I loved it so much and I knew so much about it. Of course, you know, they've heard it all before. So whatever you say, you know, they've, they've heard it all before. So he, well, I mean, he was famously horrible to journalists. And he was kind of right in the end, but that was sort of crushing, you know, when you're, you're, with, you're with your hero and they just treat you with active contempt. It's, uh, it's really quite a... A surreal experience. You're sort of sitting there knowing you've got to keep the interview going, but it's going absolutely terribly. So yeah, that was um, a painful experience. Oh gosh, I hope that you do at some point do a kind of one-man show, or you can bring it out with the Idler, or even do a kind of picture book with your son Otto about all your time as a rock critic. I am interested in uh, Roof Dog, which is the book about the Windmill Pub in Brixton. Oh, that's a tiny- to find it in Rough Trade if I went to the Notting Hill branch on September 27th? Would it be there? I imagine, I imagine it will. September 27th, is that what I'm doing? Yeah. That is um, when you are plugging in perfect harmony in Notting Hill. Right, OK. <laughs> I'll be there. I imagine they'd have Roof Dog. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, in perfect harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. Who could have said how topical it would have been? But just have a look at your Twitter feed for some light-hearted amusement about how we're going to be stuffed this winter um, and people will end up kind of rubbing the pages of the book together to keep warm. But, well, I hope they don't burn it. But yeah, my no, 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 they wouldn't burn it. Why would you burn the account of Shawaddy Waddy? Um, but I, I expect you've been asked this thousands of times, but is it not amazing that you write for the same newspaper where very briefly your mum was the woman's editor? I don't think my mum was ever at the Times. My mum was at, she was in the, would have been when I was little, you know, 70s and 80s. She was um, at tabloid journalism when it was really at its height. So she worked for the people. Um, I think she was at the Sun for a while. But this is the days when papers were selling like 7 million copies a day. So my great frustration is that, you know, my parents are reasonably well off and, you know, they're working in newspapers um, on good salaries. I hate to break it to you, but, you know, these days the money just isn't there anymore. So it's, uh, it's not the well-paid job it once was. You have to work, for, you know, kind of do twice the work for half the money. Yep. So that's always a frustration for me. But um, the strange thing was when I was growing up, I didn't want to be a journalist. Um, it wasn't something that I, you know, cause I saw the stress that they went through, and you know, my parents got divorced, and I, I you know, didn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was right for me at all. Um, I, I didn't even start in journalism until I was about 27, and they didn't have anything to do with it. They were, it was a friend 
of a friend was um, said that they needed some subs on the Guardian Guide because uh, a woman was on maternity leave. So I came to do some cover, and then they just taught me how to do, you know, basic, basic sub editing. Yeah. And so that's where it started. And I loved being on the Guide. It's great fun. But it was completely different from the world that I'd heard described by my parents where everyone was smoking, and they would go for these incredibly long, boozy lunches, and you know, expenses everywhere. You know, and it was a to fly out from Europe, you know, truly a different world. time. Yeah. Oh God, we've run out of space. Will Hodgkinson, thank you so much. Imperfect Harmony, sing along pop in seventies. Britain is out on nine eight books. And you can see Will at various places in the next few weeks. If you're going to Cheltenham Literature Festival, Sunday brunch with Will and Dave Hepworth is the place to be. I'm going to try and get to Mike Batts' uh, chat for a Womble special at Foyles on Charing Cross Road. That's October 25th. And the tour also takes in Liverpool, Appledore Literary Festival in Devon. Uh, As we discussed, Notting Hill, uh, the Rough Trade West branch, the original Rough Trade uh, on the September 27th and on October 5th, as mentioned, in conversation with Mickey Berenie from Lush, who also has a book out this autumn, and it'll be at Newham Bookshop. All the details are online at Will Hodgkinson Writer, for that is what Will is, dot com. Uh, and we'll finish with a song which was number one 50 years ago this month. Low marks for spelling, high marks for bricky glam. 